look, Sir Orin is a grown man. He meets yeah. this five-year-old girl. I guess I understood what they were trying to do was some sort of weird, a Chase Courtney love. I thought you said a Chase Courtney love for me. <laughs> and I went, uh, no such thing. Recorded in our Nerdhaven studios, this is Pop Medieval, with your host, Dr. Richard Scott Noakes and Nina McNamara, discussing the intersection of medieval literature and pop culture on a semi-weekly basis. And now, back to your podcast. What, Doc? What, Nina? Movember continues, and this time we've got a much more family-friendly episode planned for everyone. <laughs> could, it could hardly be less family-friendly than our last one. This one is a, from 1982, a wonderful Rankin-Bass animated special called Flight of Dragons. Now, if you are my age, that is to say old, uh, you grew up on Rankin-Bass cartoons and the stop motion animation the frosty the snowman the rudolph the red-nosed reindeer um some of the fantasy ones i really liked i remember really liking um the hobbit when i saw that and then they did return of the king weirdly they did not do fellowship of the the ring yeah they just did return of the king they didn't do fellowship of the ring or the two towers i remember i was young enough when i saw that that i don't think i had read the the Lord of the Rings yet. And the only thing I remember from it, other than being puzzled and not understanding what the heck was going on because they decided to start in media res, uh, was, <laughs> was a song, uh, through the, of the nine fingers in the ring of doom, which, uh, if it doesn't sound like that, that's how I remember it. Uh, from I want to stop this podcast right now, and I want you to sing the entire song. <laughs> That's all I just remember for the rest of, of this episode. That's all I remember, but I, <laughs> I will, I will try to. <laughs> I don't care what royalties we have to pay. We'll, we're, we'll, we're just gonna. <laughs> we'll have to make a, a bonus track, a secret bonus track, <laughs> just, just me karaokeing that song. Uh, so that was in the seventies. That was kind of my uh, these Rankin Bass cartoons and stop motion things were things I really looked forward to. But you. Uh, Flight of Dragons made a real impact on you, didn't it? It did. This is one of my favorite childhood movies. This is really important to me. It was a it was a movie, and then it was a TV movie. It was played on television, like uh, many Rankin Bass specials, as you said. And my grandfather taped it off of that TV special, and I watched this movie until the VHS tape warps. So if if you guys know what VHS tapes are, you are my age, probably. Uh, <laughs> does, does this does this mean that when you were watching it, you were disturbed? When the commercials didn't come on as they were supposed to? They came on as they were supposed to when I was watching it. And I, I was shocked. But you could see in this movie with on the DVD as I was watching, because I own the DVD, I was a little bit shocked. And I would turn to Engineer Mike and say, you know, a, a, a bunch of commercials aired at this point. And he would look at me and say, yeah, I, I kind of guessed it as it faded out. <laughs> this is a medieval fantasy epic, as much as, you know, 90 minutes would allow set in a medieval fantasy realm where magic is the overarching driver the the science instead of science they have they have magic uh, unfortunately it's being driven out it's being waned away by man's logic a wizard named carolinus is seeking to find a balance 
but that's being driven away by an evil wizard named Omadon. Omadon is like the super bad and he is a, well, we'll talk about Omadon's role in a little bit. Omadon seeks to destroy mankind with magic. He wants to uh, see magic drive out and make man evil and have man destroy itself with science and then take over the rest of humanity, the world with magic. But Carolinus isn't having that. He wants a balance. But he also wants to separate the magic realm from the rest of the world and live in peace and harmony with just magic. Yeah, at some point, he, his idea is to create a kind of magic gated community or something where they go off yeah. into another realm, I guess. Yeah, it's like if uh, we were playing World of Warcraft, it would be, was it Dalaran? Oh, that's, that's kind of a deep cut. Yeah, wow, I've right. forgotten now. Yes. <laughs> it's it is a it deep really, cut. really... Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I can't I... believe I remembered that. So he, Carolinas goes into modern times, well, modern 1970s Boston, and he pulls out a kind of a, a geeky nerd who is a former fantasy novelist who quit writing his fantasy novel to design a board game, kind of like a board game Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and enlists his help to go on a quest to restore magic or the balance of magic and logic to the world. Yeah, and, and it's not just like, they don't say it's Dungeons and Dragons, but they have, you know, polyhedric dice that they're rolling. Yeah. Uh, so it is very clearly Dungeons and Dragons that he's working on. Uh, and, and the pieces, the little pieces that uh, he's carved, the plain pieces, I should say, they are representative of the characters in the magic realm. I mean, there are two dragons, there yes. are the wizards, there are there's the, the princess, which we'll talk about later on, too. <laughs> he's shocked that he is the, the, the true one, or what is the, the trope? The, the, the one. one true, the chosen one, yeah. And as he's pulled into this world and sent on this quest, only he can retrieve the magical item, which is the crown of Omadon, um, because he's the descendant of uh, the great Peter, I believe. That's is it. Is it a knight? Is it the knight of the round table? See, I have to say, I watched it twice, and I still don't understand this because he clearly made this world. He's kind of the creator <laughs> of the world, and half the time he doesn't know what's going on in the world. I couldn't figure out if like he was. Someone... Well, it's he hasn't finished the book. He's supposed to be writing this book and he hasn't finished it. So he really doesn't know. So is he the great Peter? That's what I was trying to figure out. Maybe he was the mm, great yeah. Peter. Kind of cyclical. Yeah, we don't know. But along the way, it's, he it's meets, the dark, the you know. the dark tower of 1983. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but along the way, he gets fused with a dragon named Gorbash, who, you know, Gorbash as Gorbash is a little whiny. He's kind of, kind of a ponce. <laughs> Peter is uh, very logical, very science-minded, and he's got to find a way to balance his science mind with the magical realm. That's the gist of the movie. It's, uh, as I was watching it as an adult, because again, as a child, I watched the hell out of this movie. Like, I drove my mom, I drove my grandparents absolutely crazy watching it, and I know my mom's going to be listening to this podcast because I told her ahead of time, I said, I'm going to be doing the Flight of Dragons for this, and she's, oh, that's nice. And, um... She'll appreciate so, that impersonation of her, I'm sure. She... <laughs> I, I wanted her to know because I, I drove her absolutely crazy just watching this movie over and over again. And as an adult, I'm like, I recall the feelings I had watching it, but I can see the holes in the movie mm -hmm. more as an adult. I can appreciate the themes of it so much more, too. I think we should get into that. Yeah. So obviously one of the big, not one of the, the big theme is, you know, magic versus logic, though sometimes they say science. 
Uh, they they can't decide yeah. whether it's logic or science. What I didn't because there's a difference. Yes, that's true. And what I didn't know which, that was that this was based on a, a book by mm-hmm. an author named Peter Dickinson, uh, which I right. could, I didn't lay hands on uh, before this, though I oh finding that book is near impossible. Yeah, it's 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 expensive too if you want to buy it. Yeah. Used. <laughs> I mean, the idea is that he approaches dragons from the as if he's a scientist writing about the the life cycle of dragons. There's a really long tradition of this. Dragons are pretty old. Uh, I mean, they arguably you could say like much older than medieval, the yeah. medieval age. Oh yeah, 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 deep into antiquity. Uh, which I shouldn't say the word antiquity. Uh, a long time ago, uh, antiquity <laughs> trust is, antiquity is a kind of god in this, I guess, or something, but. But even like Pliny the Elder, so in the classical era, he wrote a book called Natural History. And in it, he kind of does a scientific study of dragons. He talks about how they're in India. A lot of medieval thought had that dragons were in India and that they're natural. They were the natural enemies of elephants. Mm-hmm. By the time we get to the Middle Ages, uh, Isidore Seville, a really important guy lived in the end of the 6th, beginning of the 7th centuries. He wrote something called Etymologies, another kind of very scientific, obviously 7th, 7th century science, part about the life cycles of and the hunting habits of dragons. Uh, and even though he was a bishop, it's mostly not about, it's not about like this represents Satan. It's more about like they're real animals and here's what they do. And mm-hmm. then even the later Middle Ages, you get to the 13th century, there's a guy by the name of uh, Bartholomaeus and Angelicus, and he writes something called Of the Properties of Things, which is a long treatise on all sorts of different subjects, geology and basically every all sorts of different sciences and, and theology and study of angels. And he has a section there also on them. Uh, and again, he's all into elephants. Dragons hate elephants. Like that is, if there's one thing I know from medieval Middle Ages, Dragons hate elephants. That is the idea of the medieval science. Even though in medieval stories, I can't think of a single fictional account, uh, one that's not presented as as a scientific account, of a dragon fighting an elephant. That was just the science of them, right, Uh, of the time. And this kind of does something similar. So what did dragons symbolize? You see them on family crests. You see them on shields. What do dragons symbolize in, in medieval history? Well, they, they obviously they symbolize power. Mm-hmm. They're the natural predators of elephants uh, in the science. Uh, and then in, in the iconography, obviously not in the family crest, they represent uh, Satan. And they're often, oh. yeah, and they're often a connection between our world and the next world. So, for example, our readers, sorry, listeners who are interested in Arthurian legend might remember that um, there are these two dragons that cause... Vortigern, an Arthurian legend, couldn't keep his tower from falling down, uh, th- mm-hmm. this kind of thing. And so there are this kind of magical connection between our world and the magical world in the stories. They are almost always in stories evil or best a morally neutral beast. Mm-hmm. They weren't the kind of, it's not until you get to the late 19th and 20th century, you start to see a lot of friendly dragons dragons who are going to help you and give you advice and dispense wisdom uh, that that doesn't come until later most of the time so i want to talk about dragons as satan because i mm-hmm. kind of noticed this as an adult the discussion of science and logic in this movie and I, I wondered if you could kind of marry the 
discussion of science versus religion too Mm -hmm. because at some point my favorite scene as a kid in this movie and even as an adult was uh when peter as gorbash the green dragon and his mentor smurgle who's getting you know he's he's too old for this crap he's uh getting ready to retire and suddenly he's got to go on this quest to teach this young whippersnapper how to fly so they're at this mountain and they are eating diamonds and rocks yes And Smurgle doesn't quite know how to explain it. He's just saying, you eat these diamonds, and then you chew on these rocks, and then suddenly you can fly. And Peter's like, well, yeah, diamonds and limestone, you you chew them up in your your belly and make calcium, and it causes a spark, and suddenly that's that's hydrogen, and uh, you become lighter than air. That's science. Smurgle goes, well, we don't really question it. It just is. And to me, as an adult, I'm thinking, oh, they're kind of having a theological argument there. Or, or a theolo- not an argument, but a theological discussion there. You know, we don't really know why things are the way they are. It, it just is. And here's Peter, who is a science-minded person. He's going, well, no, I mean, you, you got to break things down with a, a little bit more theory than that. And they're not having, uh, no, you're wrong because of X, Y, and Z. It's, okay, well, you have the why, now I have the how. It happens again later on, which I'll get to. But uh, I just, I want to know your thoughts on that. Like, I, I, I don't know if I'm stretching here, but I... No, I think that's right. And and not just in not just in medieval Christian thought. I mean, me, medieval uh, Islamic thought also. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the vaunted... Uh, medieval Islamic medicine, you have, you, you get really uh, a rise in, in medicine in the Middle East during the time when you have the rise of Islam, not in opposition to that, but rather more in question of how does God make this work this way? How does this work this way? And why does it? And I think the same is true for why you see monasteries, for example, in, in medieval Europe being mm-hmm. the center of of medicine, very much the same idea. And so I think this idea that they were not in opposition to one another, but rather, oh, well, yeah, that's another side of this thing. Uh, This Mm -hmm. is the how, and this is the why. I think that really is a pretty, I would say that's a pretty good representation of the way that medieval thinkers, uh, not just Christian, but Islamic medieval thinkers uh, tended to to approach these kinds of things. The idea wasn't that science was some, the idea that science is in some way oppositional to, to religion is very, a very 19th century idea, really, I think, Mm -hmm. which has sort of gained some, really gained a lot of speed in the 20th century. You know, before that, this idea that they would be in opposition would be kind of weird, I think, in the way that we might think of, you know, the idea that my sense of sight and my sense of sound are separate senses, but rather mm-hmm. they're both sensing. If I see a car and hear its engine, I'm sensing and hearing the same thing. Uh, I'm sensing the same thing two different ways, I suppose. Yeah. And then later on toward the end, and sorry if I'm spoiling this for everyone for a uh, almost 30 year old 40 year old movie. movie. For almost, almost 40. 40. Oh my God. Old, yes. Oh Jesus. Oh God. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now I feel really bad. So at the end, Peter confronts Omadon, who just goes straight up Hakira on his ass. <laughs> yeah. So Omadon, the big bad in this movie, to me, he represent he represents magic, but he's a zealot. He mm-hmm. says you cannot have science; it has to be complete magic. Yes. He gets Peter to deny all magic, which is extremely loaded here. He's either denying all magic, or he, you could say he's just denying all. He's denying God. Mm-hmm. 
And by doing that, they're having a theological argument. Omidon says, okay, I have this type of magic. I can do this. I can turn man against man. I can cause wars all with this. And Peter says, no. And he starts listing out the, you know, the litany of uh, different areas of study, you know, uh, psychology, um, zoology. Yeah, he just, he basically goes through the alphabetical list of of all the studies of, of science. And by doing so, of course, he's denied he's denied entrance into Eden now or heaven, depending on mm-hmm. how you want to look at it. Again, with this whole description of science versus religion or magic versus science, it's a much heavier movie than it was to me when you know when I was three or four, of course. But I, I thought it was much it's much deeper than it's been given credit for. Yeah, and what's weird to me about that scene is that when Peter denies all magic and he goes through this litany it's kind of like you know you don't it's kind of like you do chemistry by shouting the word chemistry over and over again (laughs) in a test tube until chemistry happens it's like he's chanting a spell and so the way in which science then gets it gets turned into a kind of magical spell where if you say the magic words uh in a certain way it then runs in opposition to magic. And so what I found curious about it was that it did seem to suggest that, well, our modern world could use some magic in it. uh, And the magic is waiting for us there. And the having a world without magic is bad. But then when it presents the science itself, it both presents it as something which is different from magic. But on the other hand, it seems to be almost like just another practice of magic when Peter finally does it. Uh, When Peter finally quote unquote, does science by, by chanting, <laughs> does the science. yes, by chanting, <laughs> ch- chanting fields of study at this, uh, uh, it basically sounded like he was uh, reading through the, uh, college of arts and sciences list of departments <laughs> at some point. So, but yeah, it was interesting. And it, what's weird about it too, is the suggestion seems to be that we do live in a world without magic. And so the only way to get rid of Omadon is to, get rid of magic. But of course that would imply that there's no evil in our world. And our world is certainly not depicted that way. Right. There's a kind of a a vague gesture toward uh, anti-nuclear arms proliferation in it and some other things uh, along those lines, just a kind of vague things that aren't going to, children aren't going to get. Basically people will use science to do evil because I, Omadon am evil, even though Omadon is defeated and not part of this world. I, that I, I struggled with trying to figure out how, how that was supposed to happen. Yeah, it's definitely a children's movie because it doesn't explore the larger consequences of not Mm. having Omadon and it doesn't explain the modern world either because the the modern world still has those, quote, evils in it. So One of the things I wished I could have done, so I was young when this came out. Uh, I was older than you, of course, but I was not an adult. I don't remember, I, I think I must have seen it, uh, but I, I don't really remember it. There were a few scenes I thought, mm, that seemed familiar uh, in my mind. I mean, the early 80s, we do have the satanic panic, right? I mean, after... Jo- I after, remember this. Yes, after Jonestown. Yeah. And uh, there started to be this fear of cults, uh, Christian cults. And then we had, uh, without going into the whole sort of origins of it, we had this idea that uh, Satanists were also doing all sorts of things. And it was connected with Dungeons and Dragons. The Dungeons and Dragons was part of this Satanism. And and I was trying to figure out at some point if this film 
was in dialogue with that movement to sort of say, hey, look, evil of magic, there's also evil not in the magical world, and most of it is most of it is good. If you just embrace the good stuff, embrace good stuff like uh, chivalry and loyalty and, uh, you know, and all the <laughs> other fine things that we have going on here. It's hard to say, like, I, I guess I'd have to be a generation older than myself to, to really understand how that was happening or if it was happening. So I'm glad you brought up chivalry because I want to spend a couple more minutes of our time talking about Sir Oren. <laughs> Which chivalry, I want to save an entire podcast for, but let's talk about Sir Oren, who is the most ridiculous knight. Because he shows up to this quest, and the first thing he asks for is tea. Uh, yeah. How does, how does Sir Oren stack up against real-world expectations of a knight? So, there is no tea in medieval Europe, so we'll start with that. Thank you. Tea doesn't come into to Europe. I mean, it, it makes its way from China. Um, I think it's, it's like 17th century. It begins to appear. But yeah, tea is not quite there yet. A, a lot of Sir Oren didn't seem to me to be like our stereotypes about knights. It seemed to me American stereotypes of British people. <laughs> exactly. He seemed, yeah. he seemed to be very weirdly like an old fart in a Monty Python sketch or something. Uh, who... <laughs> Or, uh, and I know he wasn't supposed to be taken for humor, but there's a lot of tut tut governor, that kind of talk in it. Yeah. I, and I, it was weird. I, I couldn't figure out why they didn't have more knightly stuff in there, I guess. He does have, he, he does behave in a chivalrous manner. He also does also look like a hero from a 1970s, 1970s movie rather than a 1980s movie. Yeah. He's, he's got a good mustache, I guess. Yes. He has a very 70s mustache. At one point, he gets off his horse and says he wants to do a charcoal sketch of something. I mean, uh, like, this is not a, a knight. This is a parody of a knight. He kind of reminded me actually much more of the idea of nobility that you would get in Chinese and Japanese culture. Much more like an ideal samurai, not as they actually were necessarily, but where you would be very interested in calligraphy or the arts or poetry. Like, he seemed to be that kind of knight stuck into American understandings of what the British are like. I see. In some okay. way. Okay. So let's let's keep him in mind for when we talk about chivalry and courtly yeah. love and like for that podcast too. So put a pin in him. Put a pin <laughs> right in his head. So let's get into our stray observations then. Okay. I want to talk about the cover art for the DVD. If you pick up the DVD... Uh, which I recommend. This is one of like three DVDs I own. I, I We don't own that many DVDs, but this was really important to me as a, a childhood artifact. The DVD art sucks. Like it is really, really bad. It's really, really like preschool, play school. Yes. Um, it is not representative of Rankin Bass art no. whatsoever, which, you know, Rankin Bass is hit or miss. It's both beautiful, but it's also very, um, I don't, what's a good word for Rankin Bass? animation i don't know their, their characters are often lumpy they're they're less concerned they're <laughs> they're less concerned with having their characters look beautiful in most cases rather, it's rather like than make... the imitation of a character yes. rather than the exactness of one so that's that's kind of what it looks like and and this is just i, I was very upset when i saw the cover art for this this is these are not my dragons that's <laughs> what i said no where but are it, my dragons it does look like <laughs> these are not they ba back back in the olden days uh, when I worked in Chapman Video, the which was in the days when we had 
there were still a few stray laser discs and it was all VHSs and betas. A lot of the children's, the like straight to video children's cartoons had this exact mm-hmm. same style art. So I think yeah. it must have been whoever's whoever was doing that art was hired to do a kind of crappy version of this. Mm. Uh, it makes it me mad. Looked very similar to the rest of those. Then I need to mention that the theme song is by Don McLean. My mom would be very upset if I didn't mention that. Uh, my mom is the world's biggest Don McLean fan. Shout out to her. And I should also point out that a couple of days ago, Engineer Mike was singing it uh, so often <laughs> and so loudly that uh, you almost <laughs> killed him. So that he lives, though. Still. Yes. He wasn't singing the exact same lyrics, though. He was just kind of making up his own lyrics like he does with uh, all other songs, too. So that is why I almost killed him. It is a cool song, though, I will say. It is. It's a very cool song. Don McLean has Mm -hmm. always been a great singer, so Mm -hmm. I will give him that. Stop me if this sounds bad and overly critical, but the quest itself was extremely manipulative on behalf of the the wizards because they're they're like okay we can't go retrieve the crown itself because rules and reasons but we can sure manipulate people into retrieving the crown i mean yeah i mean it was a there was this weird plot device where we every time something needed uh, something logical would have happened (laughs) and they didn't want to happen they're like oh there's magical rules that this can't happen right it's gonna happen some other for some other reason Exactly. So, you know, you have to do this and you have to do that, but we can't do that because we're wizards and we made a vow that we wouldn't get involved. But you are getting involved by influencing people. Well, it also doesn't seem so. to apply to Omadon, who straight up does whatever he wants. Yeah. And he doesn't seem to be bound by the same rules that everyone else is bound by. And speaking of Omadon, like his final act of manipulating people is to give the questers depression at the end. Did you see that? (laughs) Like when he stretched his his ghost or his shadow hand out and they all collapsed, they're like, oh, I'm just a little guy. And what use are my arrows? And oh, I'm just a wolf. And then they all collapsed and like, oh, you guys have acute depression, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it comes from bad magic. That's what we learned here today. Well, we got Prozac to help you with that today. Yes. Two more things. One, did you notice on Carolinus's bookshelf in his library of unfinished books? Yes. One of his books was Beowulf. Yes, he has other medieval books in there as well, where it's just a list of, uh, well, it's unfinished. I wasn't clear on what that meant because they're, have they been started? Like I I was trying to figure out, does that mean the Beowulf poets hanging around in their magical world? I took it as books that were unfinished in real life but they were finished in his library. But why aren't they finished in real life? That's what I couldn't figure out. <laughs> uh, reasons. Because <laughs> okay. and, and, uh, in Peter's world, it's for already For the same done. reason why they couldn't go on yes. the, the quest themselves. Those are why the books couldn't be finished. I will say when I was watching it, one of the common themes was adventurers go along, they meet some opposition, they fight the opposition briefly, and then they realize, oh no, we're all on the same side. And then they right. join up so that by the end, they've yeah. got a kind of motley crew of an elf and a, a Robin Hood figure. Uh, I forgot her name. Uh, and Danielle. Danielle. Yes, and the, She's badass. The, yes. And a knight and a, a talking wolf. And as we go through this, each of them were at some point like some kind of enemy, I guess, that then came over. <laughs> and I thought in the end, are they going to get to Omadon? Omadon's like, oh, no, actually, I think I'm on your side. Let's all be good guys together. Uh, but of course he didn't. 
Yeah, they get less and less developed as the story goes on, though. Have you noticed? Like, yes. you don't. I don't know anything about Giles the elf. No, except he has a flute. Which kind of racist of uh, Peter to assume that elf can play the flute. I mean, he could, but that was true. We had no, we had no sense of that. He just suddenly was like playing yeah. the flute. Which is, gets back to my, the weirdness where Peter seemed to know everything about the world because he had made the world, or maybe it was projected onto him, but then he didn't know any details about anything ever, no. so. Well, if he knew everything about the world, he would have known how to dispatch of that three-eyed ogre. Yes. Without Smurgle dying. Right. You know, it's his fault that Smurgle died. I have been mad at Peter for, <laughs> for being responsible for Smurgle's death since I was three years old, so. You don't have to stop being mad. You can be mad still. I'm I'm still mad. Don't worry. I'm I'm it. carrying that. All right. So should we get into some recommendations? Let's get into recommendations, Nina. Go ahead. What's your recommendation? So my recommendation is a documentary that streams on Amazon Prime, if you've got that. And it's called Eye of the Beholder, The Art of Dungeons and Dragons. And it's okay as a documentary. It's neither great nor terrible. I think it's good as a documentary, as a kind of active documentary storytelling. But what I really liked about it was being able to look at all the art and watch it develop and start to really be able to place the styles of art with eras and with certain artists and what's going on in Dungeons and Dragons and elsewhere in the role-playing world. And so you'll see some interesting dragons, other ways of drawing dragons in the Rankin-Bass version, which are which are interesting themselves. They kind of look like blimps. Mm-hmm. You'll see all sorts of uh, great ones there. So that's called Eye of the Beholder, The Art of Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, and you bring that up because the there's dragon logic and dragon science in the Flight of Dragons. Yes. Because they're they're drawn like they wouldn't fly, but how they how they explain I talked about the scene in, in which uh Smurgle teaches Peter Gorbash how to fly, but they explain it pretty well. Like these big dragons, but I guess they're really, really light and they just float up like the Hindenburg. Yeah, a lot of contemporary art, I mean basically since the Renaissance, we've moved more toward generally wanting Art where animals are depicted in a, a way that reflects their physiology and their anatomy. And when you first mm-hmm. see these, of course, it doesn't look at all like they do. But then when they explain the science of it, you're like, well, actually, maybe a dragon would look just like that. Yeah. Uh, this weird sort sense. of this weird sort of bloated rank and bass sort of thing. Exactly. So what was your recommendation, Nina? Haha. <laughs> okay. So we talked about how the Flight of Dragons book is an extremely rare find. Well, I think we have something just as rare, if not rarer. This would be Dragonlance the board game. Yes. We're kind of aware of Dragonlance the series of books. Well, this happens to be the board game on which the series is based. This game is pretty straightforward. You have dragon plane pieces. It's a hexagonal board game. And you are trying to fly toward a tower and steal the lance and bring it back to your base capture the flag style um and defend yourself from the other players who are trying to stop you it is super fun uh we have it well you have it it's at yes it's yours but it got left here (laughs) i think you were moving and you didn't want to we're moving we're moving we didn't know if we would have room for it yeah and now because of covid19 and possession being nine tenths of the law i kind of have it yes (laughs) no it is super fun if you can find it it is hard to find i did a cursory check it's not easy to find like you have to look on ebay for it you have to look on etsy i think i I saw someone on etsy selling it like Mm. etsy is for crafts why would you be selling it on etsy if you can pick it up it is fun like we had a lot of fun playing it yeah no it was a really good game and I remember I had reread, I loved Dragonlance when I was maybe in middle school or high school. I started rereading the first book 
and I realized I would no longer love it. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> but so I stopped. Oh, uh, we all grow up. Yes, but the board game was surprisingly just a, especially a board game is based on just some sort of other property. It was surprisingly fun. Any final thoughts? I liked this movie. It was weirdly nostalgic for me for a movie I hadn't seen because it felt so 1970s, even though it was made 1982, <laughs> I think. 82, yeah. 82, yeah. And so I do recommend it. I do. I just, uh, I would love to lay hands on that book. So if anyone out there wants to buy us uh, copies of the books and send them to us, we would be happy to receive this as a free gift. Now, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to start yes. begging for stuff. That's how I'm going to start getting oh, things out of this. We're happy to busk. I mean, <laughs> we'll sing We'll sing that stupid Lord of the Rings song. We'll, you know, whatever you want. We need to have a whole karaoke episode where we just sing Flight of Dragons <laughs> and Frodo of the Nine Fingers. And uh, uh, we, we, we need to have an episode that'll, that will immediately get taken down because we've violated all sorts of copyright. Oh, you know it. Trust antiquity. Yes, I will trust antiquity. Do you have any final thoughts, Nina? Uh, don't be like Sir Oren, whether that's uh, in your ridiculousness and your idea of chivalry or how you behave toward five-year-olds. That was weird. <laughs> yes. He was trying, trying to be chivalrous. So, he was trying. But he came off creepy for sure. Very much so. Milady. <laughs> <laughs> Gross. Don't do that. But yeah, pick up this DVD. It's great. Okay, well, West Through Hall, Nina. West Through Hall, Doc. Pop and Evil was recorded under in the studio. The hosts are Dr. Richard Scott Noakes and Nina McNamara. Our audio engineer is Engineer Mike. The music is courtesy of Dr. John Jinwright. For more information, visit our website at profawesome.com slash That's P-R-O-F-A-W-E-S-O-M-E dot com slash Thank you for listening. Frodo of the Nine Fingers and the Ring of Doom. <laughs>